Hello everyone and welcome to episode 342 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name is Valerie Koo and I'm CEO of the Australian Writer Centre where you will find awesome writing courses and a wonderfully supportive writing community. And I'm here with Alison Tate, also known as A.L. Tate, author of the Mapmaker Chronicles and the Adaban Cipher series. But soon, with some news that we're going to be hearing today, author of a number of other things. How are you, Al? Well, I'm ex- really, I'm actually really excited. I'm really excited. <laughs> oh my god! I, hope, I know. I hope oh you're all god. sitting down and are coping <laughs> with the with the level of joy that I'm kind of exuding here because I'm not fair to middling this week. I'm having, I'm having quite the week. So, <laughs> so <laughs> I know. So yesterday, I um I signed a contract, uh, an, a Yay! second contract with I know with um, Penguin Random House, um, and I'm happy to reveal here on the podcast, which I have not as yet revealed, that it is the second, uh, it's a second Maven and Reeve mystery. So the first book, which is called The Fire Star, is out on the 1st of September, and I am currently, and if you are, you know, hashtag write a book with Al with me, um, I'm currently working on the second book for um of the Maven and Reeve mysteries. So that's very exciting. But my other exciting news is that in the post this morning, in the Express Post, I received mm. my very first copy of The Firestar. And it's like it's Woo-hoo. actual book in actual hand mm. moment, which, um, <laughs> you know, I mean, we've talked about this before. Like this is my seventh middle mm-hmm. grade novel, like which is bizarre to say. When I like when I say that, seven, yes. that's a lot of books, right? Wow. Um, and it's one of those things where you might think, oh, you know, you know, just another book, whatever. But it's not. It never is. It never is just another book. It is always, mm. wow, I can't yes. believe I actually managed to do that. Like every time, yes. every Congratulations. Single. Very exciting. And, and when does the Fire Star come out in regular bookshops? In On the 1st of September. So it's right. about four weeks away um, and it's, you know, so which is, you know, not very long, really, when you think about it mm. in publishing terms, which, you know, which is essentially glacial pace, generally speaking. But it's mm. amazing how things start to pick up um, once you start, you know, once you get about four weeks out from the launch of the book, uh, things really start to, you know, move. So mm. it's four weeks away. I've got the first copy in my hand. I'm expecting, um, because the post is so slow at the moment, my wonderful publisher, um, has actually sent me a, an advance, co- like a, an advance of my author copies be- via the mm. Express Post because she knows how long it takes to get things to the South Coast, even though it's mm. only from Sydney. So I'll have another box of those soon. So I'm going to have a giveaway pretty soon. I just have to, you know, work out exactly what that's going to look like. Um, but yeah, so yay, yay, very exciting, yay. very exciting. Yay. Your your postman comes very early in the day. Mine comes my like post- really really late. Oh no, I'm, I have a PO box. Oh, you went to the post office. I went to the post. So I go to the post oh. office. Procrasty Pup and I like to swing past the post office on a regular basis on our morning walk, oh. um, and I can waltz him into the post office. You know, into the actual post box section. I can't waltz him into the post office, but he mm. can come into the other section with me and have a little chat to Scotty, the guy behind the counter, and we have a little chat. And I get my stuff, and they laugh every day because mostly I'm picking up books, yes. and they're like, you know, we would probably fall over if you got anything else in the post. <laughs> Um, but, you know, when it's your own book, it's all right. I don't, I don't mind them teasing me. I'm okay with that. It's all good. Well, speaking of morning walks, we have a review from Shelley Dark who has entitled it Entertainment on My Morning Walk. 
Oh, there you go. <laughs> and given us a five-star review. And Shelley has said, thank you, Valerie and Alison, for such a wonderful podcast series. I listen to it each morning on my walk along the river. The time passes swiftly. I'm learning so much about writing and it's entertaining as well. And there are hundreds of episodes to go. Hundreds. I know. It's. <laughs> I was looking at this the other day because I wrote a post about um, – really good podcast that I've, you know, listened to over the last couple of mm. years because it has to be really good for me to be, you know, vaguely excited about it. Yeah. And um, and that was something that I'm always excited when I find a new one oh, yeah. and there's, you know, lots of episodes. But I have to say that I have not yet come across one that has as many episodes as we do, Val. We must be oh, like talking, I like, we must be Crazy. having some kind of record for talking regularly a lot. Yes. Definitely, yes. definitely. Um, and Shelley says, often I can't wait to get home to put the ideas into practice. What a great start to the day. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Shelley. Thanks, Shelley. That's it's nice awesome. to know that we're accompanying you on your morning walk. Yes, really appreciate it. And if anyone else has 30 seconds to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your particular podcast app, we'd really be grateful because it helps us in the rankings and helps other people discover the podcast. All right, let's move on to the world of writing and publishing. You have an interesting link for us, Al, on how to finish writing your book. Is that right? Yes. Well, I have what is called a relevant podcast, shall we say, because um, uh, yes. how to finish writing your book is very much on my mind at the moment. Yes. Um, and I know it's on the mind of many others because um, of the number of participants in, how, you know, in Write a Book with Owl, hashtag mm. Write a Book with Owl. Um, and I think that um, it's one of those things where when I saw this, I thought, okay, I'm looking for the magic key because that's what we're looking for, aren't we? We're all looking yes. for the magic yes. key that is going to unlock the secret to finishing your book and then I read the article which is a good article don't mind because don't, don't worry it's on draft to digital.com mm. um, and you know it it came because the writer Kevin Tumlinson uh, saw a, a question posted in a Facebook forum and it was what's the biggest obstacle to finish your book to finishing your book um, mm. and he has gone through and come up you know with some some advice on and tips on how to get it done so I read the thing and I thought you know what yes there's no magic key it's all the stuff that we talk about all the time it is you know planning. Um, not just your book so much, but also planning when you're going to do this thing. Like when mm. are you going to write this book? You cannot yes. wait to, for it to just for the time that you need to magically appear. You mm. cannot wait for that, you know, 25th hour. I always talk about the fact that everyone feels like they need that extra hour in the day to, mm. you know, to get the book done. But you you, you have to actually plan the, the extra hour in for yourself. You've got to, you know, make the time for that thing. Um, and, of course, the second thing that he talks about is something that, you know, we also talk about, particularly me because I'm so boring. Um, <laughs> and it is boring. Like, I'm sorry, it's not glamorous. But routine, routine, yes, routine, routine, routine. And, mm. you know, I, I say that to people and they look at me like I've grown three heads because nobody wants mm. to think that something as dull as routine is going to underpin something magical like writing a book. But the reality yeah. is that that is exactly um, how books get written because, yeah. you know, somebody creates a routine, they stick to the routine, um, they use that time that they make for writing 
as opposed to faffing about, you know, doing social media posts. And I may just be talking about myself here. So, you know, this is not, I'm not, I'm not casting shade on anybody but myself here. Don't worry. Um, and the other thing that, uh, that he says in this post is not to worry about quantity because I think people get, you know, really caught up with this notion that if they uh, can't write a thousand words a day, then they shouldn't, mm. there's no point in starting. And I have to say that that's that's kind of thinking is the kind of thinking that stops you from finishing a book because if you only get 200 words a day, if you only get that paragraph or two down, you know, that's still – if you do that every day, that's 1,400 words a week. Like it adds yeah. up. And I think the yeah. adding up of it is, what's, is what is actually going to keep you moving forward. And people say to me, you know, yeah, but, you know, it's not just about the word count, Al. Like you've got to – they've got to be words that count as well as sure. the word count. But – and this is what I think is really, really important. They don't have to count in the first draft. Every word that you yeah. write does not have to count in the first draft. The the key to the first draft is getting the full draft down, even if it's scrappy, even if it's rough, mm. even if your characters, as mine are, are enduring a you know a fifty six hour day. Like <laughs> even if that's what's happening to you, I mean I know that that's what's happening, but it doesn't stop me moving forward. I'm still mm. writing it because I know that what I'm going to have to do in the in the edit, which is essential. The edit is a set. I'm so sorry to tell you this, but the edits. Yep are essential, um, I'm going to have to go back, I'm going to have to look at that 56-hour day and work out at what point my characters are going to have a sleep and what, yeah. at what point, <laughs> you know, there's going to be a change in like am I going to have to change this, you know, dinner scene to a breakfast scene? Like what is going to have to happen here for me to make this make sense, that this time frame to make sense? But it's not going to happen right now because if yeah. I try to make it happen right now, I have to go back. And if I go back, I'm going to look at the 30-odd thousand words that I have at the moment and I'm going to go over them and over them and over them and I am not going to finish the draft. Mm. I have a deadline. I've got to get this thing in shape because the only way that I can go back and fix the start of this book is to know what the end looks like, to know what the mm. whole thing looks like, to know where the time frame is there. This is the way I work. You may be someone who has actually scheduled your character's day in a spreadsheet. And if you have done that, then, you know, what more power to you because you will not find yourself in the mess that I am currently in. Um, mm -hmm. But the other thing, so don't edit is the other piece of advice <clears throat> that Kevin has for us in this. Don't edit as you go. You know, although he does talk about the fact that what you can do because some people can't do that. Some people would not be able to go forward knowing that their characters are enduring a 56-hour day. And and I do understand that. Um, mm. And so then Kevin talks about um, a technique that uh, an author called Dean Wesley Smith introduced in a book called Writing into the Dark, which is the idea of cycling. Um, mm. He calls it looping. Um, so basically it's you know, write to a short target. So what you'll do is sit down and th say, I'm going to write 500 words. Um, so you write your 500 words and then you loop or cycle back to edit and rewrite that 500 words. And then oh. you do the next day, you go the 500 words, you go back to the start of those 500 words, you edit, you know, and you go forward that way. It's kind of like, if you think of it as like a cycling back, you know, through right. short bursts in your manuscript. If you are a person who can't edit, who can't move forward without editing, this might 
work for you. Um, but the, the key to it is not to go all the way back to the start of your manuscript every right. single day and edit from Got the beginning. It. It's to edit what you just did. It's yeah. to edit what you just did. It's to edit yeah. what you just did. So it's that cycling idea. Um, and important and it, to note that it's even though you're editing what you just did, remember that you're still going to edit the whole thing again at the end. You are still going to need mm. to edit the whole thing again at the end. And you may need to edit the whole thing again at the end more than once like you know it it may take you three or four goes to go through it because every time you do it like even as I'm writing now I'm keeping notes of the things that I that are coming up as I write that I know I am going to have to go back and put into those first few chapters because I haven't got them there yet so Mm. you you know just keep a running tally of the kind of information you know is missing and that way when you come to edit to do your you know your next draft you've got an idea of at least where you've got to start moving things around and what you need to do. Because otherwise, you know, you are sitting there with, you know, 60,000 or 70,000 or 100,000 words and they just feel like they trickle through your fingers and and move and you just don't know what to do with them. So, you know, have an idea of of what sort of information might be missing. Like clearly I have a note saying your time frame is very, very ordinary, Al, maybe not in (laughs) quite that many words. (laughs) Actually, my notes to myself should probably never, ever be seen by anyone else, but that's not the point. All right, and the last trick, of course, is one that Valerie and I talk about a lot, and um, it's uh, mm. accountability. And yes. I, it's one of those things where you need to, you know, I use I use social media to help me, and, and it's, it helps other people because other yeah. people are also, you know, motivated to write their words each day and do those sorts of things. But I use it to help me because I know that I've got to post every day. And if I have to put a post up saying, yeah, zero words, you know, it's, it's you, I can see patterns where I've got, you know, three days of zero words and that's probably a day where I've got to start thinking about what I'm going to so do next. So Alison's talking about hashtag write a book with Al. And so yeah. in case there's some new listeners, maybe just explain what that is. Oh, it's look, all it is is a hashtag. Um, it's off, it, I, I'm sort of working off only my Facebook page this time around. I have done it across multiple platforms before, but I just get too confused. Um, so <laughs> it's off my Facebook page, which you'll find, I know I'm easily confused, which you'll find at um, Alison Tate Writer. Uh, I just post every day. I post however many words I've written that day with the hashtag um, <clears throat> and usually some kind of useful writing post because I've got 900 of them, um, <laughs> some kind of useful writing posts to go with it. Um, and then other people who are also playing along with me will post their word counts and we all cheer. Great because, way you know, to be accountable. It's fantastic. Well, you just, and also mm-hmm. you need people to cheer. Like yes. If you manage to, if you manage a cracking eighteen hundred word day, Woo-hoo. people in your house are not going to understand <laughs> <No>. <laughs> how particularly exciting that are. It, that is, you know, you, you need to be. You've got to have some people around you who are going to go, "Yeah, that's amazing," and who yeah. are also going to say to you on those two hundred word days, "Every word counts, Al," which you also need. Like it's yeah. yeah. It's good. Now, Alison is one of the most productive people I know. Honestly, I've known her for many years and I marvel. I think I'm productive, but I marvel at the productivity of of Alison and the structures and routines that she's put in place and the psychology she applies to herself. And um, one of the great courses that she's designed at the Australian Writers' Centre is the 30-Day Writing Bootcamp. And of course, it, as the name suggests, it runs over 30 days. And why don't you tell everyone what the boot camp is about? 
Well, basically, the boot camp is me in your inbox every day. I mean, I know the <laughs> pleasure of that, me in your inbox every day, um, setting word counts, encouraging exercises, helping you to write 10,000 words. And if you mm. stick with the program, if you stick with the emails, if you go mm. with me, you will write at least 10,000 words because I, I see often on in social media – in 30 days, mm. yes, in 30 days. Um, you will see that um, I often see people say to me, you know, I'm doing the, the creative writing 30-day boot camp and, you know, I've written 25,000 words because once yeah. you start, yeah, once you use what I send you, you yeah. get yourself on a roll and you'll be amazed at what you can achieve. Um, so if you'd like to write 10,000 words in 30 days with me, then the creative writing boot camp is for you. So go to writerscentercomau slash bootcamp if you want to check out what it's all about. All right, let's move on to our competition this week. We have three copies of Across the Water by Ingrid Alexandra to give away. And uh, she is a graduate of the Australian Writers' Centre and this is her second novel. In a remote boat access only house, Liz Dawson's lifeline to the real world is her window where she watches the people who live in the three identical houses that sit across the creek. But it's the middle house Liz finds herself drawn to most, the beautiful young mother, Delilah Waters, and her baby. When Dee and her baby go missing, it's a suspected murder-suicide. Everyone in the town believes she's leapt to her death, taking her child with her, everyone except Liz. Wrestling with her own demons, Liz risks everything to uncover a truth that becomes more complex with every twist. This is The Woman in the Window meets The Hand That Rocked the Cradle. So Across the Water explores the darker side of motherhood, the pressure to conform, and how women's choices shape their fate. Ooh. That's me. That yes. sounds exciting. So go to writercentercomau slash win for your chance to win one of three copies. Entries close on the 10th of August. That's writercentre.com.au slash win. All right. So now, Al, are you ready for the word of the week? Well, in a week of highlights, it will just be another highlight. <laughs> That's the right answer. All right. Of it's casuistry. Casuistry. Hmm. C-A-S-U-I-S-T-R-Y, kazooistry. Yeah, okay, I'm Have ready. You heard it? No. Okay, so it sounds like it might refer to casualties like you would find in a war, but it's not. It actually refers to the process of determining what's right and wrong, usually by taking a moral problem and applying general ethical principles to come to a conclusion. So you might say, with casuistry, John tried to convince himself that the action he took was right. Casuistry. Except that you wouldn't say that. Oh, you I'm might. Just, oh, you wouldn't. No one's going to say that. No, it's, yeah, no. All right. Has anyone seen it? Have you ever used it? If you have <laughs> seen or used, you know what? The weird thing about this is, though, it's like Spoto, isn't it? Once you start looking for yellow cars, yellow it's cars true. are everywhere. So I feel like this is going to be like this. Someone's going to go, actually, in this yeah, novel I'm reading, it there yesterday. it is. Yeah, mm -hmm. okay. Well, I'm keen. If you, I'm keen for it. If you have <laughs> seen, used, heard, whatever, this word, please Tell share. Us. Yeah. 
Uh, tell us in the Facebook group. So if you're not already oh, yeah. a member of the listener community, uh, do join us. It's free to join. Just search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community on Facebook and request to join. We'd love to have you in there. So anyway, that was the word of the week. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre and our course, Novel Writing Essentials. Whether you've already started your opening chapters or just have a story idea, this eight-week online course will help you shape the beginning of your novel through weekly lessons and workshopping in a supportive environment with your very own tutor. Here's what Ingrid Alexandra says. What prompted me to take the course was that ultimately, like my ultimate goal was to be published and I knew from feedback that I could write that I was on the right track, but I couldn't seem to get past a certain point with, with publishers. So I decided to, to take a course and the Australian Writers' Centre has some very reputable courses and some authors have definitely come out the other side with publishing deals and so that was obviously very encouraging. Definitely one of the most useful things I got out of the course was uh, meeting other authors and being able to brainstorm, being able to network and because writing can be quite an isolating career so finding other like-minded people was pretty amazing. I learned to reflect on my work critically. It's had a positive impact because it's basically it changed the way that I that I approach writing and I definitely wouldn't be as far along as I am in my publishing career. Ultimately I think writing is a craft, it can be taught. Some people might be lucky enough to be born with a, a natural gift but like anything, like any ability, you need to, to hone it and to work on it to perfect it. And I'm now pleased to say I'm a published author. I highly recommend taking a course at the Australian Writers' Centre, no matter what stage of uh, your career you're at. Whether you just want to get that book finished that's been sitting there for ages, that you've been working on for years, or whether your ultimate goal is to get published. Very helpful for me, as you can see, by the outcome. To get your manuscript off to the best possible start, go to writerscentre.com.au slash novel essentials. So let's move on to our writer in residence this week. I had a great chat to Mary Norris all the way from New York. Now, a couple of years ago, you may remember me raving about a book called Adventures of a Comma Queen. (laughs) Well, Mary has written another book. It's a memoir and it's, it's brilliant and it's called Greek to Me, Adventures of the Comma Queen. And, um, well, I'll, let's just have a listen to Mary to talk all about uh, what's in this book. Mary, thank you so much for joining us today. A pleasure to be with you, Valerie. Now, your latest book, Greek to Me, Adventures of the Comma Queen, is out. And um, for those people who haven't got a copy of this book yet, can you tell us what it's about? Well, it's about the time back in the 80s when I started studying Greek while I was on the copy desk of The New Yorker. And it's about my travels to Greece because I started with modern Greek. And then it's about switching to ancient Greek. And uh, the difference there is between coming to ancient Greek through modern Greek and coming to ancient Greek through Latin, which I have never studied. So it's a lot about mythology and travel and etymology and uh, Greeks. And it is it is all of those things, but it really is also about your incredible love and fascination for words and language. So can we just rewind a bit and can you tell us where did this come from? 
the love of language, um, well, it would have come very early from, um, well, I don't know how to say this. I mean, doesn't everybody love language? <laughs> no. But, <laughs> my One of my earliest memories is being read to by my grandmother, sitting in my grandmother's lap and having her read um, just stories, fairy tales. Um, and I remember there was one Thanksgiving meal when I had overeaten and I felt very terrible. And my mother, my grandmother just said, it's just sat me on her lap and read to me. And by the time we were finished reading, I felt better. It had passed. Whatever it was, was just, I just felt better. And it was like a recovery. So from early childhood, I was desperate to, to be literate. You know, I knew there were these symbols out there and I didn't know quite how they worked. I had a children's dictionary that had um, photo illustrations and then the word. And I would just copy the shapes of oh, the word, the letters, for whatever I was trying to say. You know, write a letter, dear Aunt Rita. I would go to the picture of the deer. <laughs> D-E-E-R. <laughs> I didn't know that's what I was doing. Anyway, it took me a while to crack the code. But it was very exciting to me to be able to read. And I read voraciously as a child, and I had this little hobby of collecting words that had um, only four letters, but three syllables, like oh. area, idea, um, oreo, oleo. I've been adding to them all my life because I learned a little Italian and aria and aida, yes. <laughs> a lot of words fit it just those vowels and all those syllables packed into such a short word impressed me somehow so that was my one of my how hobbies. old were you when you started this hobby that is uh, that's fascinating I, I must have well I was by that point literate so I would say five or six. Oh my god what a bizarre thing to be fascinated by and to be doing all of these years later. That's that's incredible. All right, so you really wanted to be literate and you were really into words and eventually you did end up with a career in words. Can you just take us through how you got into the industry and then the New Yorker and, and so on? Sure. Well, I wanted to be a writer from very early um, and I, I think that was because something I wrote in first grade, uh, my mother read aloud to my father and it made him laugh. And my father was not an easy audience. So that is, was something I realized, well, if I can make dad laugh, I'm going to write a lot. So, and I, I wrote in high school, I wrote in grade school, I wrote in college. I wanted to be published. I had no idea how to go about it, honestly. Um, but I went to college and to graduate school, and it was from graduate school after that in Vermont that I moved to New York. And I got a job, an entry-level position at The New Yorker, because I just thought, well, to do anything even adjacent to writing would would help, would keep my mind occupied, and in the in my spare time, I could write. So that is how at the New Yorker, I worked my way up to a job on the copy desk where it, where it is true that I could, 
it, I was working every day with words and um, with the writing of wonderful writers. So I, I had, and I've been reading for, you know, all my life anyway. So anyway, what I'm trying to say is that I got a very good sense of what makes a good sentence, mm. how a sentence can be balanced. And all this while at the New Yorker, I wanted to write for the New Yorker, but it doesn't work quite the way that I had hoped. You know, you don't just send a piece in. The New Yorker in those days had, um, what would you call it, a convention in their section called Talk of the Town, where the, the stories were anonymous, but they were introduced with a friend writes. And in my naivete, I thought, well, I could be a friend. Mm-hmm. Well, those were all staff writers, you know, who were taking their, were, were just getting their chance to have these pieces in Talk of the Town. And if you weren't on the staff, it was unusual to get a piece published. As it, and I was on the editorial staff, but I was not a contract writer. So it was harder. It was like... Um, the, the editor just didn't seem to want to hear from anyone who was, who he hadn't chosen. He didn't want, you know, people forced on him. Uh, but I say that, but William Sean was always looking for good writing. And, you know, eventually something I wrote impressed him enough to publish it in Talk of the Town. But it was uh, rare. <laughs> and it was only after Mr. Sean left and uh, somebody who championed my writing was editing talk that I had more pieces accepted in Talk of the Town. But then again, it was years and years before I got a topic for a book. And that was a, turned out to be about my day job on the copy desk, which surprised me. <laughs> I'd written a novel. I'd written a memoir. I'd written a blog about parking my car on the streets of New York. And I thought all of these things were more interesting than commas. But commas. <laughs> what people wanted to read about to my surprise yes absolutely i mean the book went crazy and that is um between you and me confessions of a karma queen right but let's just go back to you were saying that um it was hard to get into that column unless you were a contract writer so if you can just share with um listeners you you describe in in this book um your latest book that you were you you did collating <laughs> what what does that mean? Well, this is a word from antiquity now, I guess, because all of this is now done very simply on word processors and computers. What that meant was, and this was after three years in the editorial library where we took apart the magazine, literally, with razor blades and pasted columns and cartoons into scrapbooks. When I moved up to collating, this was a job that was really like the nerve center of the New Yorker. Um, the, when a piece was going to press, it would be read by, um, the editor, the author, two proofreaders, a fact checker, and someone in the legal department, the libel lawyer. They would all submit proofs to the editor and the editor would mark all the queries, which ones he wanted to take. So there were five separate proofs. And what we did in collating was move by hand with a pencil onto a fresh proof, all the approved changes, and send that to the printer. And then the piece would come back the next day with all those changes uh, in place. And it was, um, you know, it demanded precision. 
That's where I learned to check my work as you know, two times, you know, usually triple check my work because you did not go anywhere at the New Yorker if you were someone who introduced mistakes. What <laughs> <laughs> yes. a very nice job. So how did uh, the first book, the, how did the book Between You and Me, Confessions of a Comma Queen, come about? That was only a few years ago, and I remember when it came out, it was everywhere. It was in bookshops everywhere. How in the world did that um, happen after all that time? Let's see. The, the way that it first came about was, you know, I, was, I had worked my way up to something called a page okay or a query proofreader at the New Yorker, and I published a few pieces, and this was in the, in the days when the website was just taking off at the New Yorker. And they had a section called Page Turner for literary things, book reviews, and um, less formal things than actually ran in the magazine. So one day, and now you may be able to hear the A-train passing for local color, mm -hmm. um, but one day two young women who were on the website, newyorker.com, came to my office and asked me if I would write a piece about commas because a writer named Ben Yagoda had written on the New York Times website a piece about commas. It was called Fanfare for the Comma Man. And in it, he had made fun of New Yorker commas. <laughs> New Yorker will put a comma anywhere that a comma belongs. You know, there are, there, are, there are two different philosophies of punctuation. One is by ear. The writer does it by instinct. And the other is to demarcate the grammatical parts of the sentence. It's supposed it's an aid to the reader. The other is an aid to the reader, too. Um, but the New Yorker is very, again, precise mm. in delineating those things and what is restrictive and what is non-restrictive, the rules mm. about that and which. So anyway, there were a lot of commas in the sentence that this guy that Ben Yagoda chose. I remember it was something about somebody dying in 19 whatever of brain cancer with all those phrases commaed off. And then the point of the sentence was that he had regrets about not doing something before he died. And all of the details of the death, including the date and the cause, were incidental. So we had them all commaed off. So he said that that was nutty. <laughs> and so it was, yes, it was nutty commas. So they needed somebody to defend the New Yorker comma usage. And they came to me because I'd written some and I'd been copy editing for 30 years and you would think I would know something about commas. But I just groaned, no, don't make me write about commas. But then, you know, I, I had inherited the comma shaker that one of our mentors in the proofreading department made. It was this little canister with paper wrapped around it and she had drawn commas on it and it had a perforated top for sprinkling like parmesan cheese on your pizza. <laughs> and the joke she thought that we used too many commas too and her joke was that before the piece went to press we sprinkled the commas on and then you know shoved it into the oven um so i realized that between have because the comma shape was on my desk and I should know something about commas, I had to write the piece. So I wrote something called The Defense of Nutty Commas, In Defense of Nutty Commas. And it went, I hate to use the expression anymore, but it did go viral. 
then they, which really surprised me, you know, the New Yorker copy desk, the editorial department, it's, is always, had always had a bit of a mystique and we kept quiet. People sometimes asked, well, would you release your style book? And we'd say, why? It's just a list of words. And no. (laughs) So it, I felt a little bit of a betrayal of the copy editor, um, you know, of our code by telling what happened backstage. And then they wanted more. The website wanted more. The website editors wanted me to write about other features of New Yorker style. For instance, the diaresis, the two dots over the second E in re-educate. Right. Or the famous example is cooperate. You know, most outlets, most publishers figure people know how to pronounce cooperate and won't accidentally say cooperate. So I I defended that, and that's not so easy to defend. We get a lot of complaints about that. (laughs) There were just many other subjects because the New Yorker has a strange, eccentric style that dates back to the early editors and their idea of what was sophisticated. There was a lot to talk about. And I had just had a conversation with uh, an, an agent, literary agent, about this memoir I was trying to write that was about my now sister. I was writing about um, transgender. And, you know, I really was just writing this thing, I realized in retrospect, to deal with it. It was my way of dealing with having my brother. And it was not a successful book as far as the agent was concerned. He turned me down. But when I started thinking, well, maybe there's a book in these columns. Maybe I could write something, call it Pencils and Punctuation. And so I, since I was already in touch with the agent, I asked him and he said, well, yeah, it, as they say, checks off a lot of the boxes. So I got a, a contract to write this book. The publisher is Norton in the U.S., W.W. Norton, and a wonderful editor, Matt Wyland, who wanted me to write. You know, I had pictured writing a collection, frankly, of blog posts, and he said, I am not publishing a collection of blog posts. I imagined it the way that a lot of books about um, linguistics are, you know, you can just flip open any section and read something interesting about some words. But Matt wanted a book that had to be read from beginning to end, a a Mm. book with a narrative thread. Mm. So then it was a matter of of getting the right balance, and I was completely dependent on my editor for this, getting the right balance between New Yorker instruction, grammatical stuff, New Yorker history, and my own personal history. So I'm interested when you say that I was really reliant on my editor for this because obviously there is, there is the combination of those things, actual memoir, first person, you know, thoughts, feelings, opinions, experiences, but also instructional, here's how the New Yorker does it and, and you know, it, it, it's a combination of all of those things. But I don't understand. How did you rely on the editor for that? Did you write the whole thing first and then let an editor pick, a, pick it apart? Or did you work hand in hand with an editor to determine the balance and what, how much you would devote to each of those categories? On um, how it worked, the way that my editor likes to work is that I give him a block of prose. He would have liked it if I had given him 50,000 words. 
and um, then he sculpts it basically. But the way that it worked, I was yeah, I was not an ideal writer, <laughs> but one of the occupational hazards as a copy editor is you get into detail, right? Yes. Yeah, so I pile on detail. I never know when is enough detail, or and I love the details, and I also love detours. Anything that I that I think, well, this might be interesting, and I go down that road for about eight hundred words anyway. And then what what the editor did was I had um, I wrote everything I could think of about dictionaries and everything I could think of about commas and. I was not, this is where the occupational hazard comes in. You know, for me, it was enough just to blat out all these words. But um, what Matt had was the the overall view. You know, it's that forest from the trees, can't see the forest for the trees. Mm -hmm. I was into examining details of the trees and had no overarching idea of where the book would go. Um, so he had to talk tell me the same thing over and over again and I'm still not good at it I'm not good at a chapter I'm good at an 800 word vignette but to make a chapter you have to have it build up and it has to come to some satisfying conclusion at the same time as it's leading to the next chapter and you have to do this over and over so you know, basically, um, what Matt would do was I'd send him something that I thought was great. <laughs> in, in, the, uh, in the for the Greek book, I had this idea that I would write a chapter called "What Color Are Athena's Eyes," and it would just be about the colors of blue and um, different shades of blue and what the eyes meant, and um, and that changed so much over the course of the editing. What Matt would do is he look at what I wrote on paper and send me a marked up manuscript with a squiggly line meant, this is all very boring. <laughs> <laughs> and then he'd maybe underline one sentence and say, this is good. And make the whole thing about this sentence, showcase this sentence. So I did a lot of, of rewriting from, you know, once I, I wrote a journal entry, you know, I, I had worked on a piece by, for the first book, I worked on a piece by George Saunders that had a few queries in it, and um, some of them went nowhere, and some of them were accepted, but what I was, what I wrote turned out to be kind of the heart, heart the section on copy editing, because it was about the interaction between the copy editor and the writer and um you know good writers are happy to be copied copy edited it's like being stroked mm. you know editing is, is wonderful to them and less secure writers are very defensive about every every word every comma and then there are also good writers who are defensive about every comma. <laughs> so it, it, there's a, a a lot of difference but what Matt often had to say to me was, we're flying from, I'm going to use some North American geographical terms here, we're flying from Cleveland to Chicago, right? Cleveland, Chicago. We do not need to go via Cincinnati, you know? <laughs> <laughs> he tried to make me get to where I was going without all these, because the asides and detours would make me forget what the point of the chapter was. Right, Wow. <laughs> so, so it would often 
and the, the chapter would have like movement. He tried music on it, you know, he tried using terms for music. Three sections. If it has more than five sections, it's not working as a chapter. Three to five sections of different subjects that all come together somehow or go someplace. So after Confessions of a Comma Cleaning, um, you've you've written this book. Um, how did this come about? How did you think I now am going to focus on my love of the Greek language? Well, this came about because while I was working on the first book, I got an opportunity to go on a press press trip in Greece, a free trip to Greece. And I should have been, I was under deadline and I should have stayed home and written, worked on the grammar book, but I couldn't resist a free trip to Greece. So to <laughs> assuage my conscience while I was in Greece, I wrote a little bit every day about the Greek alphabet and learning Greek. And I really thought, because I feel so strongly that you learn a lot about English from studying Greek, I thought I could work quite a lot of this Greek alphabet into the book about English grammar. So all of it ended up <laughs> on the cutting room floor, as they say. But um, yeah, there are there are a few references to Greek in the book. If you look in the index of Between You and Me, there are about uh, 12 references to it. And um, when it was time then for a second book, my editor, Matt, said, well, because that was part of the contract for the first book, was that Norton had an option on a second work of nonfiction. So we'd been thinking about what the second book would be after recovering from the first book. <laughs> <laughs> and um, was, well, Matt said, would you like to write a book about Greek? My God, yes. I mean, when my big Greek period was in the 80s and I was traveling, trying to write travel, travel, trying to publish travel stories. I, you know, I was okay at writing them, but I couldn't get anything published to save my life. Um, so I had this little horde of, of failed travel stories about Greece and studying ancient Greek. And I, I loved it so much. And it you know, I just felt responsive to it, and I wanted to write about Socrates, and I wanted to write about Euripides. But guess what? In order to write about those classical subjects um, in any way that can be taken seriously, you have to do all the academic research. And I thought by the time I learn everything about Socrates, I'll be too tired to write anything fresh. <laughs> so I that never went anywhere at the time. But when Matt said, would you like to write book about Greek. Yeah, I've been wanting to do that for years, but I thought it was not going to be possible because I had not succeeded before. So that's how we got around to the subject. The things that I wrote for the first book about um, about Greek that I was trying to sandwich into the, the grammar book, hardly any of that made it into the Greek book, interestingly. Wow. And so if your big period uh, in uh, being fascinated by Greek was in the 80s, this book, because it's now 2020, um, is, is, sti is still full of it's, – it's fascinating, it's interesting, and it is packed with lots of really, really interesting information, facts, trivia. What, did you retain that from the 80s or did you have to do a whole heap of research again for this book? 
I've been going three songs all along. I mean, I began to go in the early 80s, and that was, and I studied modern Greek and ancient Greek up until the early 90s. And then I didn't, I never consciously gave it up, but I did something, you know, okay, I will admit it. I went to a shrink <laughs> and I entered, I entered classic psychoanalysis and it didn't give me a lot of time, you know, but, but I was working out things that, that the Greek had made me think about. So they are related, but I still would go to Greece every few years with friends or alone. Whenever I had an opportunity, I'd go. And, um, Certainly after I left The New Yorker in 2017, because I, I had the contract for the book at that point, and I thought I'd go and write, and I'd, get, I'd do research there. The research would entail mostly going to tavernas and having nice kids <laughs> and, and nice wine. But um, what, what mostly was, I had kept every note I ever took in any Greek class. I had two big boxes. One was labeled modern Greek and the other was called Greek drama. So I had everything and I just opened those boxes and it, you know, it was like Pandora's box. There was so much in it. Um, most of it was vocabulary notes. Some of it was those travel essays that I'd written. Um, I had written, it turns out I had forgotten about this. I'd written a whole long fact piece or memoir about being in Greek plays in the original Greek. And um, all, you know, so I have the chapter on tragedy, what's called the taste for tragedy, reading, it's boiled down to reading Antigone and Electra and um, the Trojan women. So I played in, I was in the chorus of Electra and I played Hecuba. And I, I could have, I had probably 10 times more material on Greek drama than I had and that had to be really condensed, while other subjects had to be really expanded. Um, the relation of Greek-derived words to the Greek language and how they came up. My, um, and I had written about the alphabet. Sorry, I forgot what the question was, but <laughs> the alphabet turns out to be the hardest thing to write about because even as much as I love the alphabet, it's boring to read about. <laughs> <laughs> so trying to make that an essay that wasn't a lesson, alpha, beta, <laughs> um, that was a, that took a long time and more, and, and that's when most of the material that I wrote about the alphabet in Greece years before fell out. And now I just use that when I have um, events for the book, I can pull out some of my alphabet jokes. <laughs> but the book. So there was this was actual. What wanted was a mass of material that we could shape something out of. And it was really different from the first book because the first book had clear categories, comma usage, spelling conundrums, um, pencils. And the Greek book at first didn't have categories. It didn't have like, well, it was the word Matt used. It wasn't like baskets, but bins. To, to confine to you know to put material into that would later be shaped into some kind of narrative. Mm. Um, I could write about Athena. I, we st I was talking earlier about the color of Athena's eyes, and that turned out to be about Homer. That chapter, and I did have to do a lot of research on Homer. And I did everything I researched turned out to be, you know, oh, God, a rabbit hole. There 
because Greek has been around for, what, 5,000 years? I mean, Greek is so much older than English, and it's a rich, rich subject of research. So I did run into trouble because I couldn't stop researching. You know, I could, at some point, you just have to stop. I mean, there's this thing called the Eleusinian Mysteries, right? Where people went from Athens to Eleusis, Eleusina, there is a procession, and when they got there, they went under some kind of went some kind of rite. Some they were initiated into the mysteries, and one of the things that that they had to do was not tell anyone, not to divulge the mystery. And damn, they never did divulge the mystery. <laughs> but I tried to find out what it was. You know, I did all kinds of research into that. So and that <clears throat> it's really obvious that you love the research part of it and that you can get lost in the research. It's yeah. also a memoir. So the um, what was the most challenging part of including the memoir aspect of it? And were you confident that you knew what to include or what would be going to Cincinnati, you know? Um. I was not confident. I'm never confident. I mean, for the first book, you know, the chapter I wrote about gender in language, um, I wanted, I had only had uh, a single parenthesis, which was about my experience with actual gender and transgender and my my, uh, brother changing into my sister. I had put that in a parenthesis, two sentences. And Matt said, huh, this is your, this is at least, this is your whole subject. Flesh this out and it'll be part of the the uh, chapter. And it turned out that it, for that book, that was the point where the book turned from instruction and fell into something deeply personal. I'm back up again into commas or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I knew that there was going to be a similar twist in this book at some point where the book would be very intimate. Uh, And um, I wasn't sure what the subject would be, but you know, I think my editor would like it if I was someone who wrote um, (laughs) one chapter at a time in the order that they were going to appear in the book. That did not happen at all. And the very last chapter I submitted is, I'm not sure whether it's the third or fourth chapter in the book, but it's the chapter about Demeter and the Eleusinian Mysteries. Um, That started out as a travel piece that I wrote when I was in, you know, back in the 80s when I first went to Athens, when I went to Greece the first time. And it was a light piece about trying to walk the Eleusinian, trying to walk the sacred way between Athens and Eleusina, 14 miles. And um, and it was just about making language mistakes and my feet getting all greasy. And then Eleusina turning out to be a little like Cleveland, very industrial, nothing at all. So it was just kind of jokey. But the goddess Demeter is now, is no joke. And my own experience with my mother, you know, this is something that I don't, I um, I don't like it when a radio interviewer says, so tell us about your family tragedy <laughs> right at the top of the show. I think, oh, because this isn't what the book is about. Yeah. And should 
Um, it, it dips into that and then it goes on. And actually, it's after that chapter that the book is really very easy reading, I think, or certainly it was easy writing. So to talk about our, our own family tragedy, um, I, I couldn't get it right. I just couldn't get it right and, and mix it with the right blend of the mythology and of my uh, my own personal history it went back to studying mythology when i was a sophomore in college so blending that the trip to greece mm. my childhood and it was supposed to all build up too to being able to play hecuba mm. being able to play someone who whose children you know was in this tragic situation with her children and her country and um her kingdom rather um, so I was setting up for that at the same time. And it was the last chapter that I finished. And in the end, instead of, you know, revising and revising this same travel story that I'd written years ago that just would not take off, I had to start fresh, get my subjects in a row and find how to crack the code and, you know, it happened overnight. I mean, I put everything in order and went through it all again. I, I think I used scissors. <laughs> wow. I, I actually, you know, instead of using the computer, because the computer is a great thing, of course, but when you scroll, you can't see everything. Yeah, yeah, well. yeah. So wow. I had it all printed out and cut up and pasted. And, um, and it was then, and then I rewrote it from that. I guess, outline of what order things should go in. And that gave it also some emotional depth, wow. doing it all sitting. Yes. It okay. right in. It took off from the chapter before, and it led into the following chapter, even though it was the thing that was written last. Yeah, absolutely fascinating. So good on the scissors. Um, <clears throat> now, with this... Uh, so I have no doubt that this book is going to be ridiculously popular, just like the last one. What is next for you then? Oh, well, you know, we don't talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was so, so, so hard to write that book under contract, under deadline. I'm glad I did. If I hadn't had a deadline, I would have taken all my life to write that book because of all the research I insisted on doing. Yeah. Um, so right now, I'm happy not to have a deadline. And I have some ideas in the back of my mind. Um, my, I might, you know, I've. it seems like everything that I've written about so far, English language, Greek language, travel, has a seed in something that I was deeply in love with in childhood. And I'm looking back to see what might open up into another book. One, one subject is cows, <laughs> which I don't know whether I can get a whole book out of cows. You, you love cows? One subject is, oh, yes, yes, I do love cows. Um, <laughs> so that's in the first book about being, you know, trying – the dairy industry. I wanted to have a little dairy farm and just three cows I'd keep as pets and I'd make my own butter and cheese and cream. And, um, it, it just turned out, you know, I did go, that's why I went to graduate school in Vermont was so that I could learn about cows. I went to 
graduate school in English, but I was surrounded by cows. Vermont had more cows than people at that time. And I did learn to milk cows in the university barn, which was um, instructive. But one of the things I learned was that if you want to have a dairy farm, if you want to work with cows, you have to be there morning and night every day. And I was only 25. It was too soon for me to bury myself alive like that. You know? So that's when I moved to New York. But before then, I had done everything I could adjacent to the dairy industry. I worked in a cheese factory. I drove a milk truck. And then it, it all came back to me a few years ago when I went to the one of the Azores Islands on a, a fellowship it was called Footpath to Creativity. And I got to stay in a house. And the, um, on this lovely island, it looks like it's pronounced Flores, but Portuguese is really strange. So I never even learned how to pronounce the island's name. But that is a dairy island. They imported some cows there, and the cows liked it. And the whole island smells of cows, actually. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I should introduce you to a friend of mine who is the Guinness Book record holder um, for Australia in two years running for having the most, yes. the highest number of cows in her house. They're not real cows. They're cows like, you know, they would be on products and apparel and glassware and cookware and tables. and. But, yeah, she holds the world record, official Guinness world record. On, I mean, not world record, Australian record for that. Um, <laughs> but I suspect that you like the real thing. Well, I did. I did used to have a lot of cow paraphernalia, but uh, <laughs> I don't. I think I'm down to just one cow pitcher at this point. <laughs> well, I have okay. no. T I, I, I I suspect that maybe a cow book is uh, is is somewhere in the future. So now that you are um, you're you're no longer at the New Yorker, you're basically thinking about what you might write next. What do you? How does that happen? Because, I mean, I know obviously right now you're doing promotion for this book, but what do you do in your day in terms of thinking about what to write next? Well, it, it is true that I wake up sometimes without a book project, without a long-term big project, and I have a moment of panic thinking, what am I going to do today? <laughs> um, but in fact, I have some obligations. I've been writing a blog for The New Yorker about language, um, I was supposed to have written every two weeks for a year, and I ended up writing once every two months. <laughs> so I owe them a few pieces. So I'm really, you know, I always wanted to be a New Yorker staff writer, and now it feels like enslavement. <laughs> so I have to finish those. So those are on my mind. I, but, you know, there are basically, well, there are probably a lot of different ways, but two ways I can think of to tackle a book. One is the publishing model, which is writing, um, you know, having an idea, developing it with your agent, doing a proposal. This is for nonfiction, not fiction, yeah. and then selling it to the publisher and then getting a contract and a deadline and writing the book. And that's how I've done the last two books. The first one, and you know, I was so in determined to prove, to show that I was not neurotic, <laughs> that I was really pretty good at my deadlines. Um, although it was not an, an easy, it was not easy to get the tone. 
of the first book. Uh, the second book, you know, there was no pretense of my not being neurotic. It was about being neurotic, practically. So that one was, as I said, that one was was harder to write under deadline. So now I'm thinking, also after the first book, everyone was very eager for me to have a second book. And now after the second book, there's been this silence. <laughs> So, you know, I, I, and we've also had all kinds of crazy things happening in the world. So I don't know, you know, I had a lunch date scheduled with my agent back in March and it got canceled. And we, I don't know when we'll ever be able to sit down now. That's some ideas. But what I would like to do now is the other model, which is just to write something out of, you know, from my heart, write something that I, oh, well, it would be an amateur approach, write something out of love and, and then submit that as the seed of the next book instead of going the proposal route. Mm. I don't know if it'll work or not. <laughs> and I, I want very much to work with the same editor. So yes. you know, when it comes and it gets very strange, sometimes you have an idea that you want to develop with the editor, but it, the agent has to horn in to get, you know, the contract and the money. And so the agent doesn't want you to talk to the editor. And that's weird when it was the editor's idea. Yeah, right. I have no doubt that uh, whatever you choose to write next is going to be a success. And I think it will be a fascinating experience for you to do it this way around now. Um, finally, if you can just, um, it's a question that uh, a lot of our listeners are interested in. What would your top three tips be for aspiring writers who would like to, you know, get to where you are one day? Well, I would say read, mm. read, especially good things and try after absorbing the content to read them again in order to see how it's done you know, on the level of the sentence, on the level of the chapter, on the level of the book. Um, I don't know if I get all the way up to three, but the one, the other thing that I think of is never give up. Never, ever, 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 ever give up. I was in my 60s before I published a book. So I am the poster child for late bloomers. And I guess, you know, you have to realize the third thing would be to realize and accept that it's a collaboration, that publishing is a collaboration, that working with an editor is a relief and a privilege when it comes to that point. And, um, and you know, there are people who know more than you do and can help. Yeah, wonderful. Okay. And thank you so much and congratulations on Greek to Me, Adventures of the Common Comma Queen. And thank you so much for your time today, Mary. Well, thank you, Valerie. It's been a pleasure talking with you. There you go, Mary Norris. I had a ball talking to her. Anyway, where well, one comma end, queen meets another. Well, you know. Um know. where at the end of this week's episode, what are you doing in the coming week? Ow. Uh, writing a book. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I am, yes, I'm writing a book. What else am I doing? Oh, what am I doing? No, I'm writing a book. That's what I'm doing. It's all good. That's, 
What about you? What are you doing? Like that. Oh, well, we've, I'm um, doing some course development and I am working on this fantastic course actually related to what we were talking about earlier about editing and it's Uh exactly how to edit your manuscript. So I'm very excited about it. Um, I haven't got a date yet as to when it will come out, but it's a fantastic blueprint on exactly how to edit your own manuscript. So that's what I will be very busy doing over the coming week. You know, I really wish that mm-hmm. I that you'd had that course about ten years ago. Oh when I was well, yeah. <laughs> trying to work through the process of how to edit my own manuscript. Yes, yes, it's a cracker. <clears throat> All right, so uh, where do we find you online, Al? Uh, you'll find me at alisontait.com, A-L-L-I-S-O-N-T-A-I-T.com. You'll find me on Facebook and Instagram at Alison Tate Writer, and you will find me on Twitter. Where else mm-hmm. am I? Yeah, Twitter at, at yes. Al Tate, A-L-T-A-I-T. And what about you, Val? Where do we find you? You'll find me at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, on Twitter and Instagram and over at ValerieKoo.com. Of course, you'll find all of the show notes over at soyouwanttobeariter.com.au. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we look forward to chatting to you again next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.